Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, coming to you from the pop-up Chinese studio here in Beijing. I'm Kaiser Guo, joined, of course, by Jeremy Goldcorn, the black hand behind Danway.com, who I am happy to report is still moving about freely in Beijing, at least for now, despite picking fights and provoking trouble. <laughs> we are also joined by David Moser, academic director of the CET program here in Beijing, who of late has been waxing elegiacally about River Elegy in an essay you should all read if you haven't already. It's really the key to understanding China in the late 1980s. How are you, David? Oh, thank you. Thank you. You could say my prose is flowing, perhaps. <laughs> it is. Um, in my very first course on Chinese history, way back in my freshman year at Berkeley, uh, we started with geography. We learned the rivers and their floodplains and their deltas and the major mountain ranges and the deserts and the loose plateau and all of that. And, and we also learned, of course, about the all-important line between North China and South China, a line that basically runs along the Huai River and to its west, the Qinling Mountains. Summer monsoons deposit most of their moisture south of this line, making the north rather arid and suitable for wheat agriculture, and the south very warm and wet and suitable for paddy rice agriculture. Northern and southern Chinese, the Beifangren and Nanfangren, as you know, are, are quite different people. And today, we are going to hear a theory as to why that might be. We're delighted to be joined on Seneca this week by Thomas Tallhelm, a doctoral candidate in social psychology at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville. Thomas is the lead author of a team involving six other researchers of a paper that recently appeared in the journal Science. It's titled, Large-Scale Psychological Differences Within China Explained by Rice versus Wheat Agriculture. Uh, the paper, uh, which was, like I said, published in Science last month, uh, generated a good bit of controversy within the China-watching community. Thomas is also known as one of the guys behind Smart Air, which created those super cheap DIY air purifiers, which are basically a fan strapped to a HEPA filter, which they claim is, you know, every bit as effective at eliminating airborne particulates and that sort of thing, as the expensive Swiss and Swedish ones that expats talk about, as Evan Osnos once said, like teenage American boys talk about cars. <laughs> so welcome to Seneca, Thomas. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, okay, so when I read that paper of yours, I guess the first thing that popped into my mind was the uh, German-American Carl Wittfogel and his mm. hydraulic theory of oriental despotism. Now, that's, that all sounds sort of crazy now, but David, you, you're, you're probably familiar with Wittfogel. What, what, what did he say? In yeah, damn, dams. Dam building has a lot to do with it. Right, right? sure. Right. I mean, the... And uh, you know that's the, the it's interesting because the the I don't know the north the south north irrigation uh, water transport project which is now underway and actually providing water to the north right right is is sort of the, leg two of it anyway right? uh, yeah leg yeah right but yeah that's, that's that's classic right it's right. you know oriental despotism in, <laughs> in today's day and age right yeah um, uh, the sort but of I mean massive, or despotism right. because it's a huge it in all of these things entire uh, entail massive infrastructure you know dam building and water transporting yeah right um and I mean, that theory has certainly fallen out of favor these days um I'm sure edward said would would have had something to do with that but um but you know we we're certainly accustomed to this notion that there are these kind of psychocultural differences between the notional West and, and East Asian societies. And usually this is kind of reduced to uh, um, you know, some notion of what uh, collectivist societies versus individualist societies, you know, the East Asian Confucian uh, collectivism versus the, the, the sort of Judeo-Christian you know, or Based on the, the agrarian nature of the Chinese society. 
Right, but what, what what's interesting about Thomas, your your work here is you actually look for lines within China, and in, in, interestingly enough, you also sort of follow along the, the the line falls along that that continuum as well between uh, collectivist and individualistic, right? Um, I guess let's let's start with this. Maybe Thomas, you can you can jump in here. All three of you. Um, what in the popular characterization is the difference between northerners like my ancestors and 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 the southerners you know what are the stereotypes the caricatures that one side paints of the other yeah i this is actually one of my favorite questions because when i do my research i also want to know whether it fits with people's popular concept whether chinese people are aware of these differences right or are they just differences that show up on psychological tests when i give people tests um i generally hear people in China called Northerners more zhishuang, um, which you could maybe translate as direct right. or maybe brash. Um, I think Northerners are thought to be a little bit more outgoing. Southerners are a little bit more winro. Um, Gentle and retire to retiring, right? Yeah. Um, the men are known to be less um, combative, um, Physically less aggressive. vigorous, yeah. Yeah. What about the women? <laughs> Jeremy? <laughs> well, northern women are the best women on the planet, of course. <laughs> Married to one. Yes, yeah, my wife might be listening. So, <laughs> mine too, mine too. So, I'm gonna, I'm gonna put in my plug for the northern. But women. no, no, it's true. <laughs> no, no, but but what are the the, the, the differences? What are the, the things that are so often said about them? They always say what, so they have, you know, hard. They, they, they talk hard tough, mouths, but they have, the, so they have sweet hearts. Right. Whereas it's the opposite in the south that they yeah. have, you know, sweet mouths but hard hearts. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, we can go beyond that. I mean, what about what about is there in your uh, is there is there sort of a popular characterization of the the southerners being more collectivist? So if, if I could jump in sure, on this sure. one. Um, actually, one of the biggest reactions that I got to the paper, at least among uh, Chinese people, was actually I gave the talk at the University of Virginia, and we have two postdocs from China, and they came up afterwards and they said, "Great talk, but we think Northerners are more collectivistic," um, and I said, "I agree completely." Um, it, it's it, it's really a problem with the term collectivism. Okay. So when communitarian is that maybe better? I that's how I think people are sort of misunderstanding the term. I so I think when people hear the word collectivism, they think like, oh, it's about loving everybody. It's sort of like utopian socialism, right? Um, but in a cultural psychology, we use the term much more specifically. Um, and we also frequently misuse the term as well. Um, but collectivism is really about having tight, um, close relationships with certain people that you know, so family, close friends, maybe close coworkers. Um, but collectivistic societies actually have lower trust uh, towards strangers. They also have lower rates of self-disclosure. So if I put you, if you're, say, take somebody from a collectivistic culture, put them with a new person, uh, and you are measuring how much they're revealing about the self, um, people in collectivistic cultures are, tend to reveal less information about themselves, um, whereas individualistic people tend to, uh, people in individualistic cultures tend to reveal a lot more. Right, that jives with what I, I know about Americans who, I, mean, I, I remember reading not long ago a New Yorker piece that Pete Hessler had written uh, shortly after he'd gone back to America, and one of the things that he was astonished by is like, when the cable guy comes over, and, and you know, he knows his whole life story, he knows how many times he's been divorced, and you know, where his kids live, and all this, within like minutes. And it's, it, People it's, it's, sitting it's, next to you on planes, I mean, Americans are really the extreme uh, in terms yes, of exposing themselves. Of, accused us of oversharing. Right. Oversharing, very well, yeah, Yankees. Yeah. I think that's a good point. I mean, the, the 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 collectivism that we that we tend to look at, it's not it's not uh, something like this universal 
you know, bonding and sharing among the society as a whole. It's it's clannish. It's family. It's the reason why you know China. You know, there's the stereotype of the, you know, these these notions of of friendship in Chinese culture where you have a very very tight close friendship with, with one person, but everyone else is like you know in the out out group. And also, the, uh, very very clear in group out group distinction. A lot of right? a lot of people have even noticed that even the the, the Confucian uh, five relationships, that there's really no notion of how do you treat the the total stranger in society. I mean, there's no notion of like the good Samaritan, somebody you don't even know. That's just absent from the from the rhetoric. Right. It's, it's, it's absent from it's this the little category prince, for a stranger. The prince and his minister. It's it's yeah. the, father the father and his and son, son. The father and the wife, right. or the husband. Can and the we wife. turn the conversation and get a bit more into the meat of your your research? Yeah, let's do that. I mean, I, I guess I, I want to start with you know you talk about two prevailing mm-hmm. hypotheses uh, about this. <clears throat> um, you mentioned one is sort of a modernization hypothesis, and another one, which I thought was a little more interesting, was a pathogen avoidance one, which makes a little bit of sense to me uh, when, when, when you, as you were just now talking about uh, how these collectivist societies tend to keep to themselves and are a little more shunning of, of outsiders. So, can you thumbnail sketch these two prevailing hypotheses? Sure. What I call the modernization hypothesis, I think, is is intuitive to most people. Um, I think a lot of people think that as societies modernize, as they become wealthier, uh, more urbanized, that people become more individualistic. Um, I tend to think that there's a problem with this because when you look at some of the most urbanized, most modernized cultures in East Asia, for Japan, example, South Korea, Japan, South Korea. Singapore, Hong Kong, uh, when psychologists do international studies of individualism, these cultures score much less individualistic than similarly wealthy or developed countries, hmm. so for example, in, in Western Europe. Um, so I call that the modernization paradox or the East Asian paradox. Okay. And what about the other, this pathogen avoidance? One? Sure. The pathogen prevalence theory is the idea that um, in certain areas, pathogens, so diseases, have been more common. Um, and as a sort of defense mechanism against these diseases, um, people tend to be more wary of outsiders, wary of strangers. Okay. And, and, and how, how, just how popular are these within, I mean, within the literature and, psycho- and cultural psychology? Yeah, I think the modernization hypothesis is, is common to, to most, uh, almost everybody. I remember I was in a, in a restaurant in Yunnan province, and I was traveling with some, some French acquaintances that I met on the way. Um, and I, one of them commented, like, oh, yeah, you don't have to tip when you're in China. Uh, and one of the other the French travelers said, oh, yeah, but they'll get that in, like, 10 or 20 years. And I thought that was really strange, as, as if, like... <laughs> cultures just become Western as they modernize, including the custom of tipping. I thought that was kind of odd. Yeah, there is that, that sort of um, teleological assumption uh, in, in so much of our modernization theory, right? Uh, Orville um, Schell has talked about that quite a bit. Right. Yeah, but the pathogen prevalence idea is, is pretty much limited to, to cultural psychologists. And even, even among us, I wouldn't say it's super mainstream. Okay. Um, so what first led you to suspect that this might actually have something to do with the, the, the agricultural practices that are related to wheat and rice growing, respectively? Yeah, I was, in a, I was a freelance journalist in Beijing for a year, and as a part of that, I was taking uh, classes at the BLCU, the Beijing Language and Culture University, for my visa purposes. Um, but when I was there, I did find a, a really fun class on dialects, on fangyan. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was really awesome because a lot of times in China, people treat fangyan as something that you're not supposed to study. Um, and this was a class where people were actually taking it very seriously and saying, what are the differences between different dialects and how did they get that way? Um, and as a part of this class, our professor pulled out a map of China. And on this map, there were red dots and blue dots. 
And the red dots were places in China where the character hand, show uh-huh. uh, means hand and only hand. Uh-huh. Um, in other parts of China, hand can sometimes refer to the whole arm. So a friend of mine in Guangzhou was in a yoga class, and they told him in this yoga class to ting ju shou. Uh-huh. And he l- turned around and everybody in their class was sort of r- raising their elbow as like the highest part. Um, and he realized that people in his class were interpreting this to mean, please raise your arm, uh-huh. uh, which is really odd. So the professor pulled out this map and, and I thought it would be sort of the red, sh- red dots and blue dots would be sort of blob shaped all around the map. Um, but then I saw it was pretty evenly divided along the Yangtze River. So north of the Yangtze River, uh, it means hand. And mm-hmm. south of the Yangtze River, uh, it can mean arm. And I thought at that point, I thought, hmm... You know, what I say, you know, I study individualism, the friend-stranger distinction, that's really squishy. It's hard to, you know, pin down exactly who's, who's more individualistic than somebody else. Um, so when I'm trying to understand cultural differences, I always think language is a good place to start. Where do people speak differently? Um, and I think cultural differences should, should follow that. So when I saw that map, I thought, there's something important about this river. I have to figure out what it is. Is it really that river, though? I mean, is, I, I think that... Uh Typically, we don't draw the line at the Yangtze, right? I mean, the southern rice agriculture goes for a couple of hundred miles north of, of the Yangtze, all the way in, into the center of Jiangsu province, and then uh, west into what southern Shanxi and Henan, right? Henan and, and southern Shanxi. Is, is, I, I mean, yeah. I know southern Henan is very. I mean, that's that's sort of the borderline, right? Yeah. Yeah, so there's a uh, in Xinjiang County in in, uh, in Hunan they grow a significant amount of rice. Yeah, so rice extends um, for a portion above above the Yangtze River as well. Okay, um, I mean it's interesting when you when you talk about this. Do you draw a line between what is simply culturally mimetic and what is actually you know psychocultural, or are these two things the same same as the, to you? I mean, uh, you know, when these these practices are are passed on, do you think that are these just sort of cultural memes or these you know sort of practices that are passed on or, or are they you're not suggesting that they might be genetic are you no no, that, not, okay. not genetic I'm, okay. I'm, I'm talking about sort of culturally mimetic um, learned um, habits or or, or, or uh, uh, attitudes or values uh, that, that 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 are just sort of passed on you know through 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 teaching rather than deeply ingrained in I don't mean genetically I mean mm-hmm. okay so maybe you're saying that there isn't a distinction right the, yeah, the, I don't know. The, I mean, the, I I just I think the things that I'm studying are are passed on in sort of mysterious ways. I mean, I bet we could measure some of those ways. We might be able to compare uh, how parenting styles differ between the different areas. How uh, maybe education is different. Right, different right, right. Areas. That's that's what I'm getting at. Yeah, I mean, that's the sort of thing I'm getting at. Yeah. Do you, uh, do, you do you get ever get any uh, opposition or, or or sort of uh, you know feedback from from because you are, you know sinology is also you know a world inhabited by a lot of uh, of uh, you know s- social science people that probably don't aren't receptive to these kinds of geographic e- uh, explanations because they find them too deterministic and and you know just just so stories uh, do you ever get people who who fight back <laughs> and and say you know for example you could make the case that you know, maybe long ago these differences really meant something, but with intermarriage and modern travel and everything for the last hundred years, surely these, this is just a, a story you've concocted by finding some coincident, coincidental geographic. Do you ever get this? Yeah, I mean, I think anthropologists tend to tend to dislike um, this sort of theory because they think it's, uh, it's too oversimplifying. And, and to a certain extent, I agree. I mean, sometimes people will, will point out something and say, how do you explain that? And it's like, well, you know, I'm not saying that rice and wheat explains everything about Chinese culture. Um, and there is a certain way in which it can be oversimplified. 
Um, and I also don't mean it to mean that like rice always leads to a certain type of culture. Um, so for example, parts of Australia, in, in modern day Australia, grow rice. Um, but they grow them with, with airplanes and tractors and things like that, and so it doesn't really lead mm -hmm. to collectivism. Uh, parts of the American South, uh, I visited um, an island off the coast of Georgia where they grew rice traditionally with slave labor. Uh, now, I don't think the inhabitants of Georgia are, are more collectivistic because they solved the labor problem of rice uh, by making other people do it <laughs> rather than by cooperating. Right, but you know, even mm -hmm. then, we're only talking about a few hundred years of rice cultivation, mm -hmm. and, and with China, you're talking about... Uh, in, in some parts of the settled thousand. south, yeah, thousand, a millennium, a full millennium or mm -hmm. more, right? Yeah, but to the other part, of, to the other part, like, how long are these differences going to last? Um, I, I, th I think I just sort of let the try to let the data speak for itself. Um, and of course, with any theory like this, if rice, if rice and wheat really lead to different cultures, then we should find these differences in other places. Uh, okay. So. So I've done this experiment also in India and found similar differences. Oh, so you have done that. I was going yeah. to ask that. I was going to ask about India. Let's save that for just a second. I, I want to okay. talk about the data. Sure. Uh, I mean, you, you point out pretty early on in your paper that self-reporting is problematic. And so what sorts of harder evidence did you actually use to measure, you know, where an individual might fall in the collective to individual continuum? Sure. Do you mind if I actually interrupt really quick? I realize I didn't even say what the theory is. <laughs> well, all right. Okay, let's, let's yeah. Yeah, let's, I've let's, been you know, wanting to, yeah. yeah I think we need a bit of editing. Do you want to just ask me, like, well, in a nutshell? Yeah, sure, sure. The, sure, in a nutshell, <laughs> what is the theory? <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, yeah, so in a nutshell, the rice theory is that uh, rice agriculture takes, uh, it has two elements that make it very different from other forms of agriculture, like wheat, um, and those two big things are irrigation and labor. Um, so paddy rice grows in standing water, and it requires irrigation systems. Um, those irrigation systems require neighbors to cooperate with each other. Um, so, for example, Sometimes uh, different farmers will have to flood and drain their fields at the same time. Mm -hmm. That requires a, a, an amount of coordination in your everyday life um, to put food on the table. Contrast that with wheat farmers who generally rely on rainfall. Um, it rains whether I cooperate with you or not. Right. Um, and we don't have to decide you know, together when it rains and when it doesn't rain. Um, the second thing is labor. So rice requires uh, twice the number of labor hours as wheat, at least it did traditionally. So anthropologists would go to rice and wheat villages and they would just observe the number of hours that people had to work in their fields. And what they found is that rice requires twice the number of hours. This is why northerners are, are regarded as lazy. Right? Mm. <laughs> um, yeah, it might have something to, something to do with that. Uh, and so the, the idea is that over, over generations, over thousands of years, um, that sort of need for cooperation um, and the sort of economic cost to... Uh, picking fights um, would lead to a culture that emphasizes sort of getting along. Um, it, it leads to cultures that emphasize these reciprocal, um, uh, just reciprocity. Right. Um, because what would happen is that rice people in rice villages would create uh, reciprocal labor exchanges. So I would help you um, farm your field this week, and you'd help me farm my field next week. And this goes back quite a, quite a ways historically, right? I mean, because at the the moment when you actually do the transplanting into sort of the ankle deep. Uh, field mm -hmm. that requires, I mean, it all has to be done at once, right? And you need, right, there's you a strict need, time window. Right, very, very strict time window, and you need to, to gather up the, the labor of the entire village in order to do that. Right? That's right. That's, that's really, uh, that's, that's fascinating. And you could probably look at, at, at other types of, of subsistence, like uh, pastoral nomadism, for example, and, and draw a very clear distinction between the lifestyles of the pastoral nomadist and, and his sedentary neighbor, right? Right. So psychologists have actually studied that before. Um, w what they found is that herding cultures, um, pastoral cultures, uh, they tend to be more individualistic, um, tend to be more open to strangers. Rate, rates of self-disclosure, for example, would probably be higher among herding communities. 
Um, they tend to have higher rates of analytic thought, which is associated with individualism. Yeah, that's interesting. Analytic thought, individualism. Yeah. Can, can I ask about um, sure. the last time that I read about rice culture affecting uh, a, a population's uh, psychology or, 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 or mindset? Was was it Malcolm Gladwell who had the thing about uh, rice? Fa- Chinese are good at math, basically, because of rice farming. Because, oh my God, he did have that, didn't he? Yeah. So the, I mean, the, you know, if I can reduce it to a very simple uh, sentence or so, I mean, the idea is that you have to calculate a lot of shit to grow rice. Therefore, you become good at good at math. Does that? Uh, how, what do you feel about that theory? Well, it comes from Gladwell, so I immediately discount it. <laughs> <laughs> I think a lot of people do. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I feel a little bit nervous just because that I don't know. People seem to have painted that into a caricature um, and now completely dismiss it. Um, I don't know. I mean, there is a way in which there are things about rice agriculture that required more care. So, for example, when you're flooding a field, you you need to be sure that the field, that the bottom of the field is relatively flat. Otherwise, you're flooding part of the field too much and you're not flooding another part of the field enough. And that, that leads to more weed growth, um, which then hampers the growth of, of rice. Mm-hmm. So the International Rice Research Institute, which really exists, uh, <laughs> it's in the Philippines, uh, they do studies of this where you, you have a level field and you have an, an, an unlevel field or less level field, and it significantly reduces uh, rice yield. So there, there are ways in, in which it leads to more, uh, it could lead to more care. Um, although I haven't really seen a whole lot of, of good evidence. I certainly haven't tested that. Okay, so I, w- I wanted to ask you about, you know, how you actually gathered the data that you did, because it was very, very interesting. You, you had pointed out early on in, in, in your paper the problem with self-reporting, uh, and so you came up with this set of, 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 of questions, uh, these sort of questionnaires, and I thought they were they were kind of in- inventive. They were quite creative. How did you come up with the, these things, you know, like how... You know, you use the triad test, for example, uh, to to determine whether people think more holistically. Uh, what's what's the triad test? And I, I imagine a triad test would certainly, you know, show that Southerners who always, you know, join triads, as we all know. <laughs> yeah. you know but, uh, I, but, I I would have thought the triad test was having your little finger cut off. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I actually didn't invent any of the tasks. Um, they're, these are tasks that are commonly used in cultural psychology. Okay. Um, and so I, I generally thought that the north was the north of China is more individualistic, and we have plenty of studies of individualistic cultures and, and collectivistic cultures in cultural psychology. And so instead of inventing a new task, um, I wanted to use those tasks and say, hey, you know, northern China can map onto the individualism that we normally associate with only the west. Um, but yeah, the triad task is is a measure of uh, thought style, and so we give people items to categorize. Um, so. For example, one set is uh, monkey, banana, and panda. And I ask you to choose two of those that you think should go together. So what, what two do you think? So monkey and panda because they're both animals, right? Right. So, and so the monkey and the panda is, is one way that they can be um, categorized together. And that categorization I would call analytic or abstract uh-huh. um, because they belong to the same abstract category of items, right? A, a, a panda and a, and a monkey are both mammals or animals. Um, another way to do that and the way that's more common in China is to pair the monkey with a banana. It's because monkeys eat bananas, right? Right. We, we call that know. relational or sometimes holistic. And so w- which, which, is, which maps north and which maps south? So northerners tend to be uh, slightly more, um, about 10% more likely to choose the categorical pairing there, the abstract pairing. Oh. And people in southern China tend to choose the... All right, I'm a northerner. Well, this, this gets very complicated because, uh, you know, uh, I did some work at Michigan under Richard Nisbet. Oh, right, you know yep. he is, right? Yeah. Definitely. And he, I also he, did my undergrad at Michigan. But. Okay. Hey. Go Wolverines. Michigan bump here. All right. Yeah, great. Um, Isn't there like some football slogan you should chant? Yeah, go blue. Yeah, go blue. Uh, yeah, right. Okay. Anyway. Just checking. <laughs> uh, 
but he has this book called the geography of thought and and what's con- what's confusing here is is that this is this is sort of you know this doesn't make it invalid but i mean you nisbet sort of like makes this a, an east west difference rather than a north south difference right. and it might might be that if you, if you look at it in a more fine-grained way look at the data at a, at a lower level of, of, of detail, then you, you're going to get these north-south differences. But his point, I think the example he used was uh, cow, grass, and chicken. And his, the results was pretty robust. Westerners tend to lump the, the cow and the chicken together because they're both farm animals, uh, whereas Chinese people tended to say, well, cows cow and grass, grass. So that's yeah. the direct sort of thing. Because they're and so obsessed with eating. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, that's, that's right. what I always used to think too. But yes, yeah, so the idea is that this is a, a sort of a, a willingness to... Or, or the satisfying explanation for him is a level of analytical abstraction, whereas the Chinese are looking at more concrete. Mm-hmm. So, so it, this is lumped into, uh, you know, a network of of different uh, cognitive traits that in, that involve abstraction, that 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 involve uh, uh, looking at things in terms of categories as opposed to, uh, you know, just having pure physical attributes or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, to to what extent to, is this? An, an east-west difference because the, the, he he found similar differences in Japan and Korea as opposed to you know Western usually American but Western. To to what extent do you how do you how do you um, uh, negotiate the, this this difference between this east-west versus the north-south? Yeah. So if we look at it, so the way that I score that task is I I call it the number the percentage of holistic responses. So the holistic there would be like the cow and the grass. Right. Um, and when I give this this test to students at the University of Virginia, they choose about 60% of the holistic responses. Um, people in northern China choose about 70%, and people in southern China choose about 80%. So I see it sort of as a continuum. So if you look at those three data sets, yes, there's still the east-west differences, but then there are also significant differences within China. Interesting. So you could, you could call northern Chinese people more individualistic than southern Chinese people, mm-hmm. but I would still call Americans more individualistic than northern Chinese, Chinese people. people right. Exactly. The second one was in implicit individualism, right? Yeah. Um, can you explain that test and how, how you sure. would that task? In that task, in the sociogram task, we ask people to draw diagrams of their social network. So you draw a circle for yourself and a circle for your friends. And then what we don't tell them is that afterwards we go and we measure the size of the circles. Um, and America... You'd be happy to know uh, is number one in self-inflation. That is, we draw the the, disti- the difference between the size of the self and the size of the friends is the largest among any of the countries that are te- that have been tested so far. I need another piece of paper. I can't yeah. draw a circle <laughs> for myself. Yeah, so we tend to draw ourselves. We Americans tend to draw ourselves very large. Uh, and Jeremy's excluded the- here. He's not an American here. Um, <laughs> people in Western Europe, the UK, Germany are s- somewhat middling, and people in Japan, on average, actually draw the self slightly smaller than their friends, or about uh-huh. the same size as their friends interesting okay so, and so um, what i found is that northerners were slightly more like europeans so drawing the self larger than friends and people in southern china were actually drawing the self slightly smaller than they drew their friends um and that by the way japan is is basically entirely a rice culture um and so that could also explain why the my participants in southern china rice culture were similar to participants in another culture japan interesting another rice culture mm-hmm. what about loyalty nepotism that was another uh, of the tasks that you, you yeah, I like that one because uh, it gets sort of into this this distinction between sort of utopian socialism as collectivism versus um, sort of tight relationships, which is which is actually more like what China is. Uh, in this task, we ask people to imagine they are going into a, a business deal with a friend, and then the, in one situation, they find out that their friend uh, was completely honest during the deal and they made money, uh, and now you can use money to reward your friend for being a nice guy. Um, in another situation, you, you learn that your friend was dishonest, uh, lied to you about 
something important about the deal. Therefore, you made less money than you would have. And you're going to punish them. Right? Yeah, you can use money to punish them. Um, what previous research has, has found is that Americans are, are roughly equal rewarding and punishing of their friends. Um, but people in Singapore, for example, uh, are rewarding a lot and not punishing their friends. Huh. Um, but when it comes to strangers, they're just about equal. Um, so they'd call that, or I call that, the friend-stranger distinction. So you treat strangers one way and you treat friends another way. Um, and I did this in northern and southern China, so I tested um, people from all over China. And what I found is that uh, northerners were more likely to punish their friends for bad behavior. Southerners were more likely to, I don't know, give them the, the benefit of the doubt. Um, and so I, I call that loyalty nepotism because you could see it as a positive, as, as in you're being loyal to your friend. You can uh, see, see it as nepotistic, right? Right, right, right. You're not punishing friends for bad behavior. By the way, when I do this with strangers, both groups were willing to punish the strangers. It was the it was really the outlier was the Southerners not wanting to punish their friends. Right. Interesting. Um, there, there's there's two more that you looked at. One is divorce rates. Now, sure. how how is that a measure of individualism versus collectivism? So. There's sort of two parts to this. One is that uh, my theory is that rice raises the costs of creating conflict, right? Uh -huh. So if you need to work with your neighbors and, for example, coordinate when you're filling and draining your fields, there are more economic costs um, to conflict, to pissing people off, essentially. Sure. Um, and so I, I predicted that there would be less of this sort of conflict and divorces. I mean, what what's more conflictual than, than divorce? Um, also, previous studies have found that individualistic cultures have, have high, tend to have higher divorce rates. Um, so I measured the divorce. Well, I didn't measure the divorce assault, rates. I used. Assault rates or, or anything like that, or physical altercations. Sure. And that, that might have been another to have introduced. Sure. Oh. Yeah, I, I actually have studied that in another study okay. um, that I haven't published yet. Um, it's sort of how common uh, physical fights are in China, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. I found that they're more common in the North. Um, just no, <laughs> and the divorce also is more. Common. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And divorce that is was, also that more common. That shocked me. It shocked me how I mean when I when I looked at, at mm -hmm. the rates of divorce. I mean it was really really compelling. I mean that yeah. was. I mean, can you talk about statistically just how much bigger the divorce rate is in the north and in the south? Sure. So about I mean, Shanghai was just shockingly low. I, I, I was I was really really huh. surprised at that. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think Shanghai is a really interesting case because the dominant narrative about like if you were to go to a marketing seminar today and they were going to tell you about regional differences within China, I can almost guarantee you that they're going to spend so much time, most, most of their time, talking about urban-rural differences. Sure. Right. But if you look at some of the graphs in my paper, the differences between Beijing and Shanghai are astounding, right? right? They're on different... Huge. I mean, if you look at the, yeah. the thought-style differences, they're on complete opposite ends of that spectrum That's right. there. Um, and I, I have to say, that doesn't surprise me in the slightest. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it does. It does surprise me a bit. It does. I mean, I, I would have thought that they would have more in common than... I mean, then, then they do well, sure. either has with its surrounding, you know, rural areas. Countryside. Yeah. The, the the assumption is that these kind of things are are linked to you know modernization, uh, uh, raising standards of living, um, you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, exposure to media, Western media, and things like that. So you would think that Shanghai and Beijing would be minuscule, you know, in, in their differences, you know, or that Shanghai should even be more. More in, right. uh, uh, you know, in, in the more in individualistic, the, right? Individualist in the modernistic sort of. Exactly. Uh, I mean, be, by by your modernization theory, one yeah. would have thought that Shanghai would be more individualistic. I mean, that would have been my initial guess. Yeah, I think lots of people have that intuition. Very interesting. Yeah, and so I so I go through in the paper. I go through and I test the modernization hypothesis. I I take per capita GDP, also um, internet penetration rates as sure. sort of a measure of modernization. Um, and then the percentage of people who are employed in private industry as another measure of... of um, All fair proxies, I think. Yeah. 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 Um, and it, 
it doesn't do a very good job. So with, with cultural thought style, it actually predicted in the wrong direction. Hmm. Hmm. Um, so the, the provinces that were wealthier tended to think more holistically, sort of more, in quotes, East Asian. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it, uh, well, the rice culture, the rice provinces also tend to be wealthier. So Shanghai, Guangdong, Zhejiang. Um, Fujian, yeah. Yeah, Fujian. Fascinating. Uh, wh wh what about this last one, invention? You looked at patent applications or sure. patent grants, right? Yeah, um, this is probably the, the, I don't know, maybe the most controversial way to measure this, but um, so I found earlier that Northerners think more analytically, um, and psychologists, when we measure creativity, we find that people who think analytically tend to be tend to score higher on measures of creativity. Um, also, previous studies have found that uh, among immigrants to the United States, immigrants from individualistic cultures tend to have higher rates of patenting, um, patents for new inventions. And what I found is that northern China, um, the wheat parts of China, tended to have higher uh, rates of patents. Huh. Patents for new inventions, specifically. So that doesn't surprise me. I mean, given that all, you know, the the whole sort of startup culture is all focused in, on in the north here in Beijing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, that's, one of, that's one of the standard stereotypes, too. Uh, Beijingers go to Shanghai and they say, you know, uh, in Beijing, if if you're getting out of a cab and, and you're just lacking one kwai from paying, they say, ah, suan, zhujianwa. But you go to Shanghai, and if it's like one, you know, one Mao difference, they'll go to a convenience store and break the break the hundred so that they can do it. You know, <laughs> that that the Shanghai Shanghai people are supposed to be much more commercially minded, much more you know, uh, mercen mercenary and stuff like that. That's the stereo one of the stereotypes about Shanghai. Mm -hmm. So I guess the thing that fascinated me most was that you actually went down not just to the provincial level, but actually to the county level. And you looked at adjacent counties, you know, you drew the line very, very, you know, in a very granular way between adjacent counties that were predominantly wheat and predominantly rice. Yeah. And what, what did you find there? The, this is the part that I think uh, a lot of my colleagues at, at the University of Virginia found the most convincing. Um, so the, what I do in the papers, I first I show that, you know, northern and southern China have these psychological differences. Here they are on these tests. Um, and I show that it's correlated with rice and wheat. Um, but... Of course, there are lots of other differences between northern and southern China. The climate is different. Um, for example, contact with herding cultures has been a historical difference. Um, and so in, as, a, as like a more sort of granular way to test the theory, I looked at only the people in my data set who came from what I call the rice-wheat border. So these are the provinces um, where, the, where sort of rice uh, turns into wheat. <laughs> right. um, so Sichuan, Jiangsu... Uh, Anhui, uh, Hubei is also another rice uh -huh. border province. And I looked at people in nearby counties, um, and I tested whether or not we could find these similar cultural differences along people in the nearby counties. Um, I thought there would be differences, but I was actually shocked when I looked at the data. It was the exact same size of differences as well wow. um, in thought style. I was kind of blown away by that. Um, and if we see these differences right along that rice-wheat border, it's a little bit more convincing that it's actually due to rice and wheat and not to some other variable that's, mm -hmm. that might be conflated north-south. Can I ask, Thomas, the people uh, that uh, you did your research on, what kind of people are they? Are they just farmers or is it urban people? I mean, what's the uh, Yeah, no, so I tested, spread? I tested over 1,000 people, um, and I would, it's probably safe to say that none of the people that I tested have ever farmed uh, for a living. Um, so I tested university students. So except for the, the measures that were from the census, so I mean, divorce rates and stuff were, were census statistics, um, all my other tests I did with university students. Now, psychologists often like to criticize uh, university samples as saying, oh, do those, you know, they're students. Does it really generalize to the entire population? 
Um, but I think for testing regional differences, I actually make the argument that the Chinese education system is actually a blessing for me. Um, why? Because you get incredibly homogenous samples, right? What, what I want, I want to control all, of, all extraneous variables. Uh, I don't want to test, you know, bankers in one area and farmers in another area, right, because they have different jobs. So instead, if you look at a university sample, you get basic, I get hundreds and hundreds of students who are basically the same age, basically have the same job, i.e. no job, uh, basically no income, and they've all been selected on a single standardized test score, which is a great proxy for education or IQ. Um, and so I use student samples like that. Um, the, the biggest remaining difference is where they're from. And if you go to a large enough university, so I collected a lot of participants at Beijing Normal University, where I do research, um, they actually have pretty even samples from around the country um, because they have these sort of you know, quotas for enrollment. Um, so it's actually quite convenient for testing regional differences. So this is suggests that this, this prints for a little while, I mean, that it lasts across generations and yeah. that it, in fact, um, you know, it has nothing to do with the actual engagement in, 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 right. in, in agriculture. Right. The theory is, I mean, I think culture is, is something that has a lot of inertia to it. Um, you don't have to actually uh, farm rice to, to, have, to inherit rice culture. There's also the fact that, that uh, in a certain way, China, that some of these regional uh, variations might be more robust in China because uh, uh, China in the 20th century was, was still uh, you know, largely not modernized, still mainly agrarian. And during the Mao period, where it was closed off, there was, there was actually comparatively little travel between provinces. People tended to live and grow up and die in the, in the same, same region of the, of the country. And even now, it's only been since the you know the late '90s, and now we have this new generation of post '90s spoiled kids who probably are off the scale. You know, I don't know, but but the 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 the, the inertia and the continuity is probably, if anything, greater in China because you've, you've had such a long period of time where people were stuck in their regional uh, ruts. Yeah. yeah. Although, if I could give like one small piece of sort of provocative evidence, um, there's a book called The Culture of Honor, um, and that's about parts of the United States, particularly parts around Appalachia mm -hmm. in the United States. And the theory there is that... Um, Scots-Irish, so right? The, you're right, exactly. exactly. So there are parts of Appalachia were settled by uh, Scots-Irish, which is a traditional herding culture. Um, and there's research showing that people in herding cultures tend to have higher rates of, of violence, particularly to protect property or to protect your honor. Um, and what those researchers found was that in the 90s, when they did that research, that those parts of the United States settled by people from traditional herding cultures, um, settled, by the way, about 200 years ago, um, you still have higher rates of violence, particularly for things like um, disputes between lovers um, and, and, and not like, uh, for example, robberies or something like that. Um, and so that's 200 years after that uh, immigration happened. Um, and I don't think herding has really been a major part of uh, people's livelihoods yeah. in Appalachia for for decades or generations. Yeah, I would just add, there, there's even a lot of data that shows a lot of the U.S. things like voting behavior uh, and, and religiosity and stuff. It still breaks down at the Mason-Dixon line. So, and that's the Civil War also, you know, right. back in the 1860s. And, and there's no reason to think that that, but, it's, but that's also fairly robust. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah. so I, th I think there is, there's certainly a possibility that these differences somehow get passed down over time and are, are somewhat... Um, resistant to change. I mean, obviously, in the case of China, only time will tell. Hatfields and McCoys down to Elmore Leonard's Justified. I mean, it's yeah. a, I don't know if you've watched that show, but it's, <laughs> yeah. it's one of my favorites. Uh, can, I, can I ask a quick question about the, Absolutely. the uh, 
you know, from from you know my domain, you know, I come from philosophy, and people like to attribute a lot of these these things to to philosophical, you know, mm. uh, concerns yeah. of Confucius, which always seemed ridiculous to me because yeah. what percentage of the population even yeah. read that stuff, you know? Yeah. But on the other hand, you know, there is a reinforcing effect, uh, and and with East West differences, we look at things like Chinese uh, f- uh, f- uh, familiar uh, family name family. Uh, what do you call it? Surnames. Uh, not surnames, but uh, family uh, forms of address. Oh, the fact that we that they're more finely grained in Chinese mm-hmm. culture, so that you have you know uh, a different term for yeah salsa and and your nine is different from your lao lao right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and people have attributed. If you don't this. speak Chinese, it's the relatives, the your maternal grandmother yeah. is different and from o- your and paternal older than grandmother, you and your cousin yeah. on your mother's side, older than mm, you, and right. such and such. These divisions are, are you know, they sometimes are supposed to be the 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 residue of the Confucian culture, where where you know the the, the, the notion of Zhengming, where you had to like name everything in order to know, know how to to uh, to behave with these people in the hierarchy, right? But I, I say all that to say this must have also bottom up and top down effects that that the lore the philosophy including even the, you know the high class philosophy must have a reinforcing effect it springs from these cultures but it also has a top down effect yes yeah i i agree with you when you say like there are people out there who say oh you know china's collectivistic because confucius wrote this thing right. in a book and it's like that's pretty crazy to me yeah um but and so i think we're sort of on the same page when when i think I think there was probably a lot of thinking going on. I mean, if you look at like uh, Fatia, right, legalism, mm-hmm. right, um, or like you know Moism, uh, there's lots of different strains of thought in 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 ancient China. Um, and I think there was probably a certain strains of thought that were more consistent with the culture that was already there. And those mm-hmm. were the ones that got reproduced more and that got passed down and and got right. got put in the library. Um, so I think yeah. And then eventually it becomes sort of a top-down process after people right. start to accept an, it. An example being the neo-most notion of the boai, you know, this sort of universal, universal love, love right. that never caught on. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, and, and, and your explanation maybe rings true that it never caught on because it was just against the grain of these of these clannish, you know, uh, rice growing rice growing society. Oh, so one last thing before we move on to to air filtration, um, you offer this very tantalizing suggestion um, that we ought to find differences in other countries where there's been a, a rice wheat split. And you said you've done some work in India. Can you tell us very quickly what you found in India? Sure, I did. I did two of the same tasks, um, the psychological tests uh, in India, and I found similar differences there. I actually found the the effect size was actually slightly larger in India, mm-hmm. and it's not clear to me. I mean, it could be because there's been more of a strong sort of regional cultures in in. India. India. Um, so perhaps you have these rice and wheat cultures that existed already, and then you added on top religious differences or regional rulers. You had stronger regional rulers in sure. India historically. What states does that line run through in India? So, oh, in India, it's actually uh, it's, it's an interesting north, test case because um, it's in China, it's north and south. And India, India tends to be a little bit more east-west. Ah, right. So the east with the monsoon. Correct. Right, right, right. That right, and so the west that. tends to be drier. Uh-huh, so right. it's not confounded with temperature. Actually, the, the wheat parts of India actually have slightly higher average temperatures. Interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. Could I actually just talk about... Uh, sorry to interrupt, but I, d- I did sort of a neat study that uh, I think makes for sort of a fun story. Um, when I was, so I did this research and submitted it to science, and then uh, I was on the Fulbright Scholarship last year. Uh, and when I was doing that, I wanted to do observational studies. Cause, mm-hmm. you know, I do all these psychological tests, and they're, they're great because, you know, you're in the lab, and it's controlled, and you know what you're testing. Um, but I wanted to do some observational studies to try to see how does this stuff work on an everyday basis? Can uh-huh. we actually see this on the street, for example? Mm-hmm. Um, and there's this theory in psychology that 
people in individualistic cultures, when you encounter a problem in the environment, you're more likely to, to say, oh, that's the problem and, and change it, you know, change that thing that's external to you. Uh, whereas people in collectivistic cultures are more likely to think the problem might be with them, uh, with the self, and to change the self to fit the environment. Um, and so the way that I tested this is I went to actually... I actually went to Starbucks in Beijing, uh, Guangzhou, and Hong Kong. I chose Starbucks because it's, you know, thanks to this consumer culture, we have these um, same boxes in all these different cities, right, where I can have a con controlled environment. And I moved the chairs together so that they were blocking the aisle. Um, and I sat nearby and I counted how many people would move the chairs, so mm -hmm. change the environment, and how many people would squeeze their bodies to fit into the chairs. <laughs> I did this first in, in Guangzhou, uh, and I watched about 100 people and out of those, only three people moved the chairs. Three mm percent. -hmm. I was I was shocked. I did this in Hong Kong. It was four percent. And then at this point, I thought I had a broken experiment. Um, in psychologists, in psychology, we would call that a floor effect, right? Where you've you've designed a tool that doesn't measure anything very well because almost nobody's responding to your manipulation. And then uh, you went north. Then I went north and did it in Beijing. And the very first chairs that I was moving together. Um, I hadn't even moved them fully together to the to the predetermined width, uh, and a woman came by and she sort of went, hmm, and and moved the chair completely across the room to another table. Um, and in Beijing, it was about twenty percent after all was said and done. Wow. Yeah, that is quite an effect. And you'd repeated this across multiple Starbucks. Yeah, so I would choose several Starbucks in a city, um, and then did that in the three locations. Fascinating. Unfortunately, that doesn't leave us much time to talk about the other sure. thing that we have you here to talk about, which, is, of course, you, you uh, are, are one of the founders. I don't know who, who how many of you were involved in this, uh, but of, I'm sure anyone who's lived in China has, has read about you somewhere or another. Uh, with, with, what the name of your company is called Smart Air? Smart Air, correct? yep. Right, right. And you're actually running it as a company, is that correct? So, yeah, so we have actually registered. We're officially a company. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. And you make... What do you make as a company? <laughs> oh, we make air purifiers. We make DIY air purifiers. DIY air purifiers. So the, 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 the thing fan. is that you, you take a fan and you buy a filter mm -hmm. and you slap them together and yep. it's very cheap. Yep. And not cheap. The rest That's of us are idiots. Right? I mean, we, th those of us who've, who've bought Blue Air or IQ Air are Which just costs in the region of like 6,000, 8,000 RMB. 7,000, oh, is that what Yeah, I was looking yeah. at an IQ Air that was 11,000 before 11, all this started. Yeah. And and we're all idiots for having bought these, <laughs> unless we have extremely sensitive ears and we 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 we're, we don't. Yeah, I I mean, it all really started when as I was living in Beijing and we had the airpocalypse. It's funny because now airpocalypse is like there's been multiple ones. I mean, it used to be I could just say airpocalypse and everybody knew what I was right. talking about. Now they say which one? Yeah, yeah. exactly. The first one, the, fir the one that brought the word into one, sure. Right. So the very first one, and then I was, you know, I started to get worried about the air inside my. It was really the first time I started to get worried about the air inside. Uh -huh. I was always worried about the air outside, and where would I would wear masks and stuff. But that was that was what hit me with with the inside air. Um, and I did some research into it. Decided I was going to buy an IQ air, and found out it cost you know thousand US dollars or more. More. Um, and I thought, like, that's, does it does it have to be that much money? I mean, how do these things work? And so I did I did research. And, and sometimes when journalists have asked me about this, they're like, oh, and you did, you know, weeks and months of research. N no, it, it takes about an hour to figure that out. <laughs> I mean, or, or some people, like the Shanghaiists said, like, oh, you know, ingenious discovery or something like that. And, like, I, I really didn't discover anything. I just... I just spent a little bit of time on the internet and found out that all you need is a HEPA filter. This technology has been around for decades. Right. A HEPA filter will get rid of particulate pollution in your home, and it's not something that's super fancy. It's not owned by a single company. See, I mean, because I, I, I have to, I, I'm going to take this up with Louisa Lim from NPR, who, who, who kept telling me that I, I'm, uh, that, that my Yadu 
HEPA filters mm-hmm. were no good, that they weren't getting the PM2.5. Is that wrong? Um, well, I haven't tested yours in particular. Well, but I mean, it's a HEPA sure. filter for Christ's sake. I mean, how could how different could it be? It's, it's well, I mean, so there 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 are differences in quality of HEPA. So now I've so now that we've been shipping these HEPAs from Smartair, I've been ordering a bunch from a, a bunch of different Chinese manufacturers, and I, I have seen ones that are not as good as others. Okay. But every every HEPA that I've tested is getting rid of the small particles. Okay. Um, so particles smaller than two point five microns. What what is HEPA? Can you explain the term? HEPA? High efficiency pure uh, particulate air. Right? Yeah, and then filter. Um, and it's really it's really simple. It's uh, it's just a bunch of sort of strands that that block the particles. It's so it's basically just like a a, a, a coffee filter. filter like you you could think of it like that. Yeah, basically yeah. for yeah, yeah. right. Piece and so paper, now, what does it actually end up costing? To I mean, if 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 I wanted to go out and just sort of order a HEPA filter off of Taobao, just you know your basic kind of two inch thick, maybe like foot by a foot HEPA filter, and then a, a, a little fan. How much does that run me? Yeah, so I made the first one for 166 RMB plus some plus some shipping costs, and we ship the ones now for 200 RMB, so it'll it'll get to your door for 200 RMB. Okay, are they loud? Um, yeah, this is that is probably one of the the biggest differences I think between ours and and some of the more fancy ones. Um, is the original the so one that I call the original, which is sort of a smaller fan. I I don't think is that loud. Um, we tried one with a larger fan that we call the Canon. It looks kind of like a cannon, uh, and it's quite powerful. Um, but it does tend to be a little bit loud. So it's, uh, it was 56 decibels, I think, yeah, from about loud. two meters away. Um, although it's not all that different if you test. So we tested a Blue Air, um, a, a model that costs about 3,000 RMB. And on its loudest setting, uh, it was 55 decibels. There's right. only one decibel difference. Yeah. So they all tend to be kind of loud. Unless we're out of the house. And, and Thomas, I'm always the one asking about Filthy Lucas, so let me do that. Um, so when you set it up, when I first became aware of it, it seemed kind of NGO-ish. You know, you were yeah. doing a service to the community. Um, but you have actually set up a company. Yeah. So how is that going? Are you making money? Um I haven't put any money in my pocket, but I do uh, pay the people who work for me. <laughs> um, it's a going concern. Um, yeah, I, I I sort of think of it as a social enterprise, um, meaning that my goal is really to help people. And, and so, the, the I mean, I'm a PhD student. I'm, I'm doing other stuff. I don't need to do filters. Um, but it really just sort of sprang from when I almost got duped into paying 11,000 RMB for a right. filter. Uh, and that upset me. And I thought, this this technology is so simple. I want to prevent other people from from getting tricked like uh, I am. Are you did. selling more of them to wheat growing regions or to rice? <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right. Hey, with that, uh, we we like to wrap the show with recommendations, um, and we usually start with Jeremy. So, what do you have for us this week, Jeremy? Well, I'm afraid I've got to bring up this week. It was it's June the fifth. We're recording this, and there's been a whole lot of bullshit written about 1989 in in the media, and some very good things, but a lot of bullshit. Uh, I'd like to recommend the film uh, by. Disclosure, a friend of mine, uh, Jeremy Barme, Kama Hinton, uh, both involved, uh, The Gates of Heavenly Peace, which does a lot to um, add uh, nuance uh, to the story. Uh, and uh, if you watch it, you'll realize that it's not just a bunch of people wanting democracy and horrible commies mowing them down. There's a hell of a lot more that went on. Yes, but that, that, I mean, the problem with that film is that it does just such a terrible disservice to poor Tyling. But, I mean, <laughs> I, 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 it, it, it actually it, does, it has the audacity to, to, to 
quote to, her. To quote, I mean, to actually, you know, in her own words, to 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 show public, footage of, right, her, of her being saying, beastly. Saying what she said. <laughs> right. Unbelievable. I mean, the, the nerve. Of this, this no, but person. by the way, the, that film is now out of litigation, right? It, it's, no, it's, it's, it's Chiling is a very is persistent it, lady. Oh, as far as I know, she's she's trying to keep it going. Say, I, I, that was the way I commemorated yesterday. I watched it, um, and I tried to make my children watch it. Uh, and but they they kept saying oh, so are, is is he the bad guy is he the good guy <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no no they could get no. a job at many many media organizations right. I think exactly. with that kind of attitude <laughs> okay Thomas what do you have for us um, not really related to rice and wheat but there's a book called uh, by an author named Perry Link uh, who teaches at at Princeton uh, taught some friends of mine Chinese um, and it's called an anatomy of Chinese. And if you're at all a, a language nerd about Chinese, uh, I think it's awesome. Yeah, this is not the first time this book's been recommended. Oh, on really? Show. That's great. No, I'm glad. I mean, it's a, it's a second endorsement for for the book. I think, David, you recommended yeah. it before. Oh, that's awesome. Oh, that's great. Yeah, yeah. Anatomy of Chinese. I need to actually get around to reading it one day. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, David, you're up. Uh, I think our listeners should do their homework. So I'm going to give them two pieces of homework related to the podcast. Uh, one is the, a book I mentioned by Richard Nisbet called The Geography of Thought, which I've mentioned once before. Yeah, I'd second that too. But the other is uh, Guns, Germs, and Steel, which has a certain, you know, uh, famil- family relationship to your research, be- mm-hmm. although it's, it's about geography. It's not necessarily about personality. It's more like about modernization. It's a classic book, but it, go- it, it, it bears rereading. It's, 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 it's a great one. So, I mean, just, just a spoiler alert. Guns, Germs, and Steel boils down to basically is the continent horizontally oriented or is it vertically oriented are there large domesticable animals or are there not large domesticable animals and are there large seed grains that's or right. are there right, indigenous yeah. seed grains or not yeah. yeah so yeah that's that's a great book you I, just I ruined the book kaiser <laughs> <laughs> i know you don't I know, need to spoiler. read the book now don't no read the book just listen to what I, i've just said okay so um my recommendation for the week is a book you got regular listeners to this podcast have heard me uh, whine and bitch and, and moan about the fact that there's so much conflation of intellectuals when people you know study them uh, with activists and 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 we we tend to frame the whole debate in China as one between these intellectual activists on the one hand and on the other uh, sort of the state you know it's it's the the, the kind of uh, robotic utterances of of the party state versus these you know heroic. Uh, dissidents and and what I've always said is that there's all these other intellectuals in between whose voices aren't heard and why isn't somebody writing this? Well, I was I was doing that the other other night. Um, it happened that uh, Rohir Creamers was in town. Uh, Roger, I guess, is how he 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 likes us dumb Americans to pronounce his <laughs> name. He's a, a a a Belgian fellow who's at at, at Cambridge. He he uh, Oxford. It was Oxford. I'm sorry. I can't. I can't keep them straight. This is fucking British universities. It's a small country right. of interest He's, only so. <laughs> for anyway, tourism. Anyway, so he, he he sent me a link to a book by William A. Callahan. It's called China Dreams: Twenty Visions of the Future. And uh, I've only just started reading it, but it's it's so far it seems to be just what Dr. Kaiser ordered. I mean, it's a uh, it's about citizen intellectuals, sort of the, sort of the people. Uh, Whose whose ultimate loyalties are being battled over between these you know between uh, the party the, the party state on the one hand and uh, the these activist dissident types on the other and there's a huge range of, of ideas in in between and I, I think it, it's high time that we had some like the book's actually from 2013 um, it's a very promising beginning so far so I, I haven't gotten very far into it but already I'm very encouraged. 
And with that, I'd like to thank Thomas Talhelm for coming on the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. And uh, David, great to see you again. Jeremy. Hail uh, Satan. Hail Satan. All right, we'll see. (laughs) Are you talking about the fact that I'm wearing (laughs) a pentagram? No, I'm just... I'm wearing a pentagram. Oh, you are. You're wearing a pentagram. pentagram. No wonder you work in China. That's right. All right. All right. Uh, We'll see you next week.